Well, as you can see from the screen, we're getting back to Luke. It is our habit as a church, the main dish for us is that we work through successfully. We go kind of verse by verse and we work through books of the Bible. And we've been working through the Gospel of Luke for some time now because Jesus came and this changes everything. But right now, uh, it's grown a little bit cold because uh, we took a break, right? And we did, the, we did five weeks on the five solas of the Reformation, these great truths that shape our faith. And then after that, just last week, we paused as well, and we had baptisms, 26 baptisms right here. And it was such an amazing time, wasn't it? It was a, it's a fantastic time. I'll tell you, it's, it's one of my favorite weeks, no doubt about it. It's also humbling when you tell me that it's your favorite week, too. So, yeah, you didn't preach, and it was awesome, right? Like, uh, it was such a, such a great time. But what that means now as we get back to Luke is I've got to pop Luke in the microwave and warm that back up, right? Because we've forgotten about it a little bit. We're, we're going to be in chapter 12 today, but uh, I'll remind you of this. Once we got toward the end of chapter 9, Jesus turned and set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. He's marching there. Remember, he did, uh, the lion's share of his ministry was in the northern part of Israel. So he's, now he's marching south toward Jerusalem, and we know something pretty significant is going to happen once he gets there. But as he goes along the way, he has these great encounters, does some wonderful teaching. That's when he taught us how to pray. As I said, there were some encounters, like that's when he was accused of being the devil. Like it's always kind of a big deal when you accuse somebody of being the devil. Don't do it with the son of God. Like bad moves, swing and a miss right there. Like, but that happened. And then uh, it was also where they said they were seeking a sign. And Jesus is like, are you kidding me? I'm right here. I'm right here. As we rolled into the beginning of chapter 12, that's when Jesus started to mix it up with the lawyers and the Pharisees. Maybe you remember that from one of Pastor Jared's sermons. Then there were eternal issues on the table. I think this was Pastor Austin and, and, and dealing with that we're supposed to fear God and not fear man. And then wealth came into the picture, wealth versus eternity. That we're not supposed to be anxious about those things, but to trust God, God's like, I got you, I got you, right? And then there were some warnings. Uh, warning that, that, remember, God shows up in surprising ways. He did it at the first coming of Jesus at the incarnation. Whoa, we didn't expect that. And Jesus is saying, now I'll warn you, I'm going to come back again and it's going to surprise you. You better be ready. Better be ready. And that kind of brings us back up to speed. Now, hopefully you, you remembered all that, right? Right, yeah, you're like, no, but remember that funny thing Pastor Jared said? That was awesome. God bless you people. Love you too. Love you too. So there it is. All right, so hopefully it's warmed it back up. We are now at Luke chapter 12, verse 49. Let's look at the first two verses together. This is Jesus speaking. He said, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Does it seem like a grumpy day for Jesus, right? Maybe, maybe we don't have a full view of exactly who he is. Like we expect God to be this super sweet, very calm, extra nice, permissive grandfather type. Never getting upset. 
And then we encounter verses like this where Jesus is saying, I came to cast fire on the earth. And we, go, we encounter stuff like this and we, we realize that God is upset at times. He is ticked. He, it's called the wrath of God. And we, when we hear about the wrath of God, we want to cry foul. Because God can't get angry. God can't get ticked. God can't up, get upset. And then I say, says who? Because that's not how the Bible portrays him. And sometimes God is very upset. He is wrathful at times. Now, many don't like the wrath of God, but let me ask you this. What is the opposite of love? Is it hate? Is it anger? Is it wrath? No, it's apathy. I just don't care about you. I just don't get upset at all. Uh, let me tease it out this way. Let's say a father tragically hears of the rape and murder of his daughter. Think he's upset? Think he's ticked and angry? Yeah, he loves her. Of course he's, he's enraged. And we understand that. We don't correct him for that. Love leads to that kind of reaction. But what if? What if that father heard of the rape and murder of his daughter? And he responded by going, meh. So, I don't really care. Says something about how he felt toward his daughter. He didn't love her. That's apathy. That's apathy right there. God does get upset. You know what? You get upset. Why can't God get upset? I saw you people get upset this week. On social media, many of you were posting your outrage about a dairy farm in Indiana. Right? You saw this? And it is just enraging. It was just dairy farm. Four of the employees were just totally... I mean, animal abuse and mishandling these, these calves where they're throwing them and kicking them and branding them and stepping on their heads. It was horrible to watch. And you people were wrathful. You were enraged uh, about this. Why? Because you love animals. And because you love animals, the mistreatment of animals makes you angry, right? So love and wrath go together. If you love something, you get upset when, it is, when sin enters in and when it's being destroyed. And if there's something and it's being destroyed and you just don't care, you don't love it. You are apathetic. Now here's the deal. In our ignorance, we tend to think of ourselves, we, we have this like high view of ourselves and this low view of God. So there's this barely a gap between us and we think it makes a lot of sense that God would be nice to us all the time. I mean, we know we're not perfect. God needs to help us out a little, round off a few rough edges. But at the end of the day, we're pretty cuddly little creatures, aren't we? We think God would just be adoring us all the time. Can I just tell you that sometimes God looks at us and you know what he sees? Dairy farm workers. That's what he sees. Sin just crashing in and bringing destruction on something he loves. God loves his glory. God loves his kingdom. God loves his creation. And God loves us. And you know what we're doing? We're destroying it over and over and over, and over, and over again. Back in history, all of us collectively in Adam and Eve, we tried to dethrone God, to unseat him, to take over from him. And in that moment, death was injected into his good creation that he loves. And we have destroyed our relationship with God. We're destroying each other. We're destroying ourselves. And we do it daily. Daily. Day after day after day. 
We are creatures who God made with quite intention woven in. He intended for us to be worshiping him and loving him and loving and serving each other, and we don't. We're just destroying that that he loves. Now, let me ask you this. If you feel wrath toward a dairy farm in Indiana, can you imagine how God feels towards this rebel planet? And I'll tell you what, I hope he feels wrath because the alternative is apathy. Think about that. Sin comes in and destroys this world and God goes, meh, I don't care. Let them have it. Just let them die. That would have been horrible, horrible. See, if you don't care, you don't love. But God loves, God cares, and God has wrath toward this earth. And Jesus said, I came to cast fire on earth. And so what I'm suggesting to you is that it is not surprising that God is ticked. Actually, the surprising part is the second sentence there, not the first one. In the second sentence, Jesus starts talking about a baptism that's yet to come in his life. Now, let me make sure you understand correctly what he's talking about there. In the scriptures, when it talks about baptism, I told you last week it means to immerse, right? That's what the word means. More often than not in the Bible, when it talks about baptism, it's talking about a religious ritual that we saw last week and just loved, okay? 26 of those. That was awesome. But there are times in the scriptures when it talks about baptism, and actually what it's talking about is death and suffering and judgment. And you see that in Psalm 88, Jonah 2, and Mark 10, and right here. Because remember, Jesus has already experienced the religious ritual of dunking in water. He's already got that. He's talking about a coming baptism that, that he is distressed about. What is that? And so what he's giving a hint towards there is that this judgment that he wants to bring upon the earth, that he will bring it onto himself, that Jesus will be drenched, Jesus will be drowned in death and suffering and judgment on our behalf, that it will all go on him. And he says he's distressed until it's done. He's anxious for it. He can't wait for it. Like, think of it in terms of a woman who is pregnant. She's at 39 weeks, and it's like August heat, right? That woman, what's she saying? Let's get this done. Can we induce yesterday? Like, let's go, right? Jesus is pregnant with the cross. He cannot wait to get this thing done. By the time of the Gospels that we're reading right now, it's like the 39th week, and he wants to get this thing over with. It's been a long time. Let me make sure you catch how long it's been. It hasn't been since his incarnation when he took on flesh. It's been much longer than that. Stretches all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve ate that fruit and we in them, we were all kicked out of the garden and Jesus was there and he knew in that moment that the cross was coming. It's been a long time coming and it's almost there and Jesus says, I want to get this over with. My point is that we are shocked by the wrong part. It is not shocked shocking that God is wrathful. God is sometimes ticked. He should be ticked towards a rebel world. We are sinners who have destroyed his creation. We're destroying each other and we're destroying ourselves. God is upset and that is not shocking. What is surprising 
is that we're still here, that we're still alive, that he hasn't squashed us already. And even more, that he would then go to the cross, take that baptism of death onto himself, rise from the grave, extend grace to us, and that changes everything. And it demands a response. Imagine, if you will, a judge has a, a criminal, let's say a, a woman comes before him and, and he, she is obviously guilty. He is a just judge. And so he does what is right, what is holy, guilty. Gavel falls. That's not surprising. That's good. The surprising part is when he then gets up from the bench and steps down, takes off his robe and comes alongside her and offers to take her place, offers to pay that penalty on her behalf. That's the surprising part. But it demands a response. What if out of pride she says, no, I don't know you. I don't want you. I don't trust you. I don't want to be indebted to you. I don't want relationship with you. I'll pay it myself. Thank you very much. Now, the judge is no less just or loving. That's been proven. He is fully just and fully loving. That's done. But now this woman, who is foolish, is now condemned. You see, what Jesus has done for us demands a response, and some will receive it, and some will not, and that will lead to division. And that is what Jesus is going to get to as we continue in this passage together. We're going to pick it up again in verse 51 here. Here's what he says. So do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. You notice he didn't mention father-in-law. That's because mothers-in-law have been a problem for about 2,000 years. (laughs) Don't kill the messenger. Jesus said it, not me, all right? That's not his point at all. His point is that Jesus is a line in the sand. And and there will be division between those who love Jesus and those who don't. Those who believe in Jesus and those who don't. Those who trust him and those who don't. Those who follow him and those who don't. Those who worship him and those who don't. There will be division. Even within identity groups like the family unit. Even within the family unit. Christ trumps everything. You understand there are eternal issues at stake. Your family unit is not eternal. Your soul is eternal. Make sure you value the right one. And so if my family's not a believing family, why can't I receive Jesus? I can. If there's another family that's not believing, why can't little Jimmy find Jesus? He can. Now look, we can be nice about it. Like when I receive Christ, my family don't know. I don't have to be a jerk about it. We can be nice, but we're going to be stubbornly committed to our primary identity in Jesus. Sorry, not sorry. We're committed to Christ. But that causes division. And it has for 2,000 years. When Jews come to faith in Christ, their family will disown them. Muslim comes to faith in Christ. A Hindu comes to faith in Christ. You know, there are some times when somebody chooses in for our Lord that we did with such ease and comfort. But when they do, sometimes their families hold a funeral. They're still alive and kicking, but their families say, at this point on, you're dead to us. We just held your funeral. 
They do it at great cost. It causes division. Now, in this room, some of you have experienced this because you come from Catholic backgrounds. Some of you, right? And, and, and you know that, that it's kind of dead and hollow and dry and there's no gospel there. At the same time, your family is saying, I don't care, we's Catholic. Catholic, don't you, don't you do that. And so here you are, you've come to faith in Christ and you're growing and you're loving and, and you, you're enjoying it and they are saying, nope, don't you dare leave the Catholic church. And in that case, it's not about Jesus. It's about family identity. And when you leave the Catholic church, sometimes your family, they shun you in one form or another. But you still love them and you reach out to them and so you invite them to Redemption Chapel and they decide to surprise you and they come on Mother's Day and your pastor shares a graph about the Catholic theology, right? (laughs) Sorry about that, but look, did you think I have come to give peace on earth? No. It's family identity, and, and Jesus brings division. It's what he does. And it happens, and it's not just Catholic, it's Protestant denominations as well. Some of you have grown up in Protestant denominations, and it too was empty of the gospel and empty of life and the spirit. And sometimes people are more committed to the name on a sign out front than they are to Jesus at work inside. Because after all, if you go to another church that doesn't match the name that you grew up with, mom's going to be mad, right? Mom's going to be mad. And so in order to keep mom happy, you choose denomination over Jesus. Unless, unless you choose Jesus over a label on the sign out front, but in that case, that's going to bring division. This is an issue of identity that Jesus is talking about. Because back in that day, family was identity. Okay, see, our time, it's very different. Like, your family doesn't define you as much today. We have all kinds of identities that we choose from, right? Like, so, for example, I'm a a deadhead, skater, goth, stoner, gamer, jock, intellectual, nerd, military, hunter, fisher, conservative, liberal, gay, straight, bi, feminist, biker, vegan. I, you know, I don't know, right? Like, we have all these identities that you can choose from today. Or, or, or maybe, maybe for you, maybe you are a country music-loving cat lover, in which case you're jacked up and you need Jesus, right? Like, it's just, that is just not right. See, you see, the thing is, we have all these identities that we choose from today, but back in that day, family was your identity. And so if you wanted to get to know Rick McKee, the only thing you needed to know about me is that I am the son of Dick McKee. See, I'm a junior, right? And my dad went by Dick, and that did become very convenient when I became a teenager. (laughs) I was in an unbelieving family, and there it was, right? Um, But that would have been my identity. You just needed to know who my family was. Now you knew who I was. That was it. And so you see in this passage, Jesus is going at the very core of your identity. He's saying when you come to faith in him and enter into his family, he is your identity and that trumps every other identity. Whatever you identified as before, you hold very loosely and you cling tightly to Jesus. Are you ready to do that? Are you ready to, with whatever your identity group is, you're going to inject your identity as a child of God, as a Jesus freak, you're going to enter into that. I hope so, but it'll bring division. This is why baptism is so important. 
Baptism, as I told you last week, is publicly identifying with Jesus and with his family. Some of us want to say that our faith is private. Your faith is not private. Your faith is personal. But it is very public. It's not supposed to be private. What you say when you know I don't want to do the public baptism thing, I want to keep it private. What you're saying is, I have another worldly identity that I'm going to hold tight to. I'm going to hold loosely to the Jesus thing. I don't want my Jesus identity messing up my life. It's not good. We've got to hold tight to Jesus. We please him, not people, because after all, God's eternal. He holds our destiny. Now, as you cling tightly to your identity in Christ as the primary thing in your life, I want to give you two cautions. Number one, I want you to be sweetly stubborn. So we can be nice about this. As you cling to him, realize that you represent him. Okay? And as you represent Jesus, let the gospel be offensive, but don't help it be offensive. All right, you don't have to be offensive. We can be nice. We can be sweetly stubborn. And that flows into the second one, that we let Jesus be the issue. He's the line in the stand. It is his gospel that we're concerned about. It's not your politics that should be causing division. It is not your racial identity. It's not your view on immigration policy at the border. It is not your perspective on schooling or parenting philosophy. That's not it. We focus on Jesus and his gospel, and that is the only thing we allow to cause division. So Jesus, having now nailed this issue of identity, he's going to pivot now and start talking about the weather. I kid you not. Look at this. Verse 12, verse 54. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? So I I ride a motorcycle, and uh, therefore I am an expert meteorologist. I got game on that, right? I check my weather app all the time. And if it says that rain is coming, I drive my truck that day, I look out the window all day and it had better rain, right? (laughs) Like if it doesn't rain, I'm sad. Once it starts raining, I feel so validated. Thank you. I did it right. I did it right. The worst, of course, is when it says it's not going to rain and then it does. And and you know, that happens at times and oh well. But predicting the weather, I'll tell you what, it has been around long before weather apps. Back in Israel, the way it worked is if a west wind was blowing, that's coming over the Mediterranean Sea, picking up all that moisture, and then it rises over the hills of Palestine and causes rain clouds. If there is a west wind in the morning, they know it's going to be raining later that day. They can read that sign and know what it leads to. The Negev Desert is to the south, and so uh, if it's a south wind in the morning, they know that's going to be pulling in a lot of hot, dry, scorching heat later in the day. They can read a sign and therefore know what is coming. And Jesus is saying, why is it that you can do that with weather, but you can't do that with me? So, So how about this? The Son of Man, also the Son of God, in one person shows up by a virgin birth. Amazing teachings, amazing miracles. Talks all about eternity. 
dies on a cross, rises from the grave, ascends into heaven. And, and we say, wow, I, I have no idea what that means. But you know, there's a west wind and I think it might rain later today. Jesus is just shaking his head, right? You, you can't nonchalantly just go on ignoring Jesus. But we do that, right? Where we can't see the forest for the trees, And we get sucked into these small, little, insignificant debates. And we miss the big issue of God and his kingdom and eternity. And salvation is here. And it wasn't just 2,000 years ago. We're doing it still today. Here we are. Jesus has given us the gospel. He's given us the great commission. We are in the church age. And it ought to all be about missions and outreach, and the gospel going forward, and taking ground, and the fact that Jesus is coming back. We're looking for his second coming. It should be all about that. And instead, you know what? We're worried about flipping a plastic water bottle. Symbolic. We're, we're, we're worried about how many likes did my post on social media get? Did my team win last night? Am I making enough at work? What about relational drama? Am I getting enough respect at home or at work? And we're all bunged up about these things and missing the eternal issues that are at stake. That, that, that is, in that sense, it's like you are concerned about today's temperature, but you're not concerned about eternity's temperature. Because, you know, like hell's hot. You see what I did there, right? Like there's a south wind blowing there. You know, like you got to be careful, Right? Don't be worried about today's temperature and miss eternity. In fact, um, Pastor Mark Driscoll said this well, and I want to share this quote with you. He said, we tend to divert our attention. We tend to distract ourselves from thinking about long-range planning for an eternal future by short-term planning for an immediate future. Some of you check your weather app more than you check your heart. Some of you are prepared for the seasons with your wardrobe, but you're not prepared to stand before God and give an account and live forever somewhere. It's true, isn't it? So what Jesus says is if you're someone who's trying to figure out what to wear tomorrow, don't overlook forever. So Jesus is here. He came. And because of this, this changes everything. Don't miss the signs. And by the way, it demands a response. It demands a response, and that response has to be immediately. And, that, and Jesus is really going to nail that in the last section of our scriptures this morning. He picks it up in verse 57, and this is what he says. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. (laughs) Wait, what? Who gets thrown in prison over weather? Right? Like Jesus made a transition there. And what he started talking about is, is a concept called debtor's prison. Now, we don't have debtor's prison in America anymore. 
what would happen in debtor's prison is you would be indebted. You owed a lot of money to somebody. When you stopped paying, they would take you to court. And if you couldn't pay, they throw you in prison until you do pay. How do I pay from prison? You don't. You hope your family starts to pay it on your behalf. Otherwise, you're going to rot there. And so Jesus is saying, look, with with debtor's prison, you make sure that you settle up with the one to whom you're indebted. You settle up on your way to court. Once you get to court, once the judge, judge slams that gavel down, then it is too late. Don't let it get to that point. Of course, it's pretty random for Jesus to start talking about debtor's prison, but he's not. It's a parable, us to God. We are in huge debt of sin to God. Now the wrath, the fire is coming. Jesus is paid for it through his baptism, but you better settle up before it is too late, before you die, before that gavel falls. It's a warning from Jesus. I'm going to go back to Driscoll. I won't put this up on the screens, but he wrote this thing that it just does better than I can do with it. I'd rather just read it to you. Let me give this to you. He said, let's say that you have committed a horrible crime. You have done something atrocious and you are guilty and everyone knows you're guilty and the evidence is incontrovertible. You hire the best attorney and you ask, what can I do? And he just tells you, Nothing. Prepare yourself for sentencing. Get yourself emotionally ready for the consequences. You're going away forever. There's nothing I can do for you. You're guilty. Everyone knows it. Nothing will change it. This is a doomed case. I want you to feel that. Imagine as your day is approaching and the weightiness of your transgression has settled into your soul and you've got your sleepless nights and your panic-filled days And then suppose, according to Jesus' analogy, you get a letter in the mail. You get that feeling in your stomach because the return address is the person that you committed the crime against. Oh, man. Dare I even open it? What might they say? You open it up and there's a letter and it starts with this. I love you. And I'm worried about you. And our day in court is coming. And I know what's going to happen to you. And and so I have decided I would like to pursue you and forgive you and cancel any punishment or debt or obligation that you have toward me. And I'm worried about your emotional well-being. So I'd like to build a friendship with you and help you recover from this. And I think there's a way for your future life to not look like your past life. My guess is that right now a lot of your family and friends have disowned you. So I would like to be your family and your friend. And so I'd really like to meet with you before we go to court because once we stand before the judge and the gavel is hammered on the desk, there's no turning back and there's nothing we can do. But it's not too late. Let's meet, let's reconcile. Let me forgive you, let me bless you, let me serve you and help you. And this is so important to me that I'll meet with you whenever works for you. I've cleared my whole schedule and whenever you're ready, I'm going to come and meet with you. You don't even need to come meet with me. I'll come and meet with you. What great news. And I want you to imagine that your next move is this. You take the letter and you crumple it up and you throw it out and you head to court. No, because once you die, once you stand before the judge and that gavel falls, it's too late. 
And Jesus is begging you, settle up now before it's too late. He wants you to run to him, to run to him, to let his baptism, his death and suffering count so that the fire doesn't fall on you. And then as a result of that, he wants to become your identity that trumps every other identity. And not only do you identify with him, but with the family of faith. See, there's division in earthly families, but we become family together. And so out on the atrium, you see where it says, know, grow, and go. We are a family, and we know Christ together. We are growing. That's our identity. We're growing in our relationship with him together. And we go advance his kingdom together. I don't care what you look like. If you're in Christ, you are family with us. We are family together. And Jesus is calling us, don't put it off. Settle up now. And I'm hoping that some of you probably haven't done that yet. And we're about to have a song of response. I'm hoping that during that song, you might run to Jesus for the very first time. For those of you who have already made him your Lord, I'm hoping you'll wrestle with the idea, do you proclaim his name above everything else in your life? Will you allow your identity in Christ to trump any other identity? Will you this week intentionally take steps to inject your identity in Christ into any other identity group you have? I hope so. And I'm really glad that we get to do this as family. In fact, I want to pray for us as family right now. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I uh, come before you right now and and I want to thank you that you are not apathetic. I, I get that I just thanked you for being wrathful, but at the same time, that's far better than that you just didn't care and kicked us to the curb. But you do care, and so you were upset. But then you went even further that you didn't let it fall on us. You gave us a way that it could fall on your son on the cross. And Lord, that changes everything. We don't want to be apathetic towards that and act like that doesn't matter, and we just go about our life worried about the weather. We want to have an identity shift that as we run to you, we're folded into your family, and that you are what matters. You are our identity. And that we do that together as a family. Father in heaven, would you glorify yourself in our lives this week as our identity as we go out into this world. And for that I pray in Christ's name. Amen.